Hello, everybody. It is episode 84 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. We are coming towards the end of June, but it's never the end for Our Weekly here. My name is Eric Nance, and I'm joined, as always, by my excellent co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how's it going today, my friend? Heating up uh, a lot here on the East Coast, but can't complain at all. Everything's going well. How's everything in the Midwest? Yeah, you're getting the leftovers of that heat up, and I'm not sad to see that go. We are having very pleasant temperatures outside, but I must say my my work to prepare for my workshop is definitely heating up, so I'm feeling it there, but it's, uh, it's exciting. We're already almost the end of June, so it's only a few weeks to go before the big event, but yep, it's... A lot happening at work too, but you know, life never slows down, but you should stop and smell the roses once in a while. Cause you might miss it. There's your eighties reference for you. <laughs> Sometimes I got to remind myself that. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yep. Well, speaking of appreciation, we definitely appreciate our curator this week, John Calder, one of the uh, longtime members of our, our weekly curator group. Always been fun to interact with him. He's also a fellow shiny expert and shiny enthusiast as well. And as always, he had great help from our fellow Art Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world. Now, I would say that we've had more than a few highlights over the past few months, which have de- where we have seen that R has definitely been, you might say, flexing its technical muscles thanks to its community for generating really awesome looking tables. And even though this may seem like a recent phenomenon, we can actually trace back the beginning of these capabilities to at least five years ago, and frankly, even longer. Now, one of the influential packages, in my humble opinion, in this reporting space, especially for those that have been creating summaries and reports with the Microsoft Office suite, is the FlexTable package offered by David Gohel, founder of the consulting firm Data. And I'll get to my personal journey of FlexTable in a little bit. But first, let's dive into some of the new features landing in the 0.7.2 update to the package that's just hitting CRAN this month and as detailed in David's blog post, which we're going to review here today. Now, a key principle of design in FlexTable has always been a succinct grammar of quickly obtaining a robust table that can be further customized with intuitive functions. And that process gets even easier in the context of summary data that's produced via aggregations, where you can now use the tabulator function to define the layout of the table and optional customizations to the appearance as well as some additional data you might leverage. And this release also solves another thorny issue when creating complex tables is dealing with headers, in particular complex headers, These are a staple in many manuscript tables you see in publications, and yes, the enterprise too. So this new update introduces the separate header function to quickly split a column name that has logical components separated by a special character, such as say the variable name, the type of measurement, and whatever statistic you're calculating into neatly organized headers, again, with just one function call away. And David also details a few quality of life enhancements for handling things like soft returns and tabs in their table metadata to make the printout much easier in HTML and PDF as well. But now it's time for a little story time with Eric here. So many years ago, many years ago now, 
one of my first assignments of my professional work, I was asked to conduct a mix of exploratory analyses related to genetic data that were being generated from uh, patient samples and clinical trials. And with the complex nature of these data, well, it was a slam dunk. R was easily the best language to import and analyze these data, especially when I had to merge it in with some of the more clinical characteristics to start generating some model and visualizations. So then came the time I had to share the findings with our collaborators. We had a mix of both internal and external collaborators. And I was told in no uncertain terms that we needed to produce these in Word documents because that's how it was done before and that was what they were most used to reviewing. And I was also given a template kind of from their this uh, consultant's lab on how they did this in the past. And I thought, oh, it looks pretty basic enough with a little complexity in headers and, you know, the types of statistics and quantified. So I thought, well, there's got to be a way to do this in R. This wasn't exactly the easiest thing to figure out at first, but then just I must have been coming at the right time because that is when I discovered David's early version of Flextable. And not only is Flextable great for creating tables themselves, hence the name of it, but Flextable is part of a larger effort that David's been spearheading to make R a, a, a seamless automated connection to producing summaries and visualizations in the Microsoft Office suite of tools. So given I was tasked to do this in a Word document, I was able to script out a pretty concise script to generate the summary stats and the, the linear model fits and do this for each biomarker in my data set, have a very polished looking table no copy and pasting at all, none of that. It was all automated in a very seamless format. The collaborators absolutely loved it. And Flextable did basically all the heavy lifting for me. That is where I gained a, a true appreciation for having packages that not only do a general purpose well, but they're able to hook into these connections that depending on your line of work or what type of role you have, there are always these kind of unescapable truths. And one of them is, is that in the enterprise, the uh, the standard for communicating results back and forth is 99% of the time, these office documents. So if I'm gonna be forced to make an office document, I wanna be able to have fun with it and minimize the effort of manually transcribing or manually moving over results. Ain't nobody got time for that, especially me these days. So. Flex table was my first lens into what also became later on the office verse suite of packages that have totally transformed the way I populate word documents and yes, even PowerPoint slides when I have to. Now I am the person who loves the web-based interactive formats. I love HTML. I am standing on that crusade as much as I can. But when I have to play into the confines of these other static formats, what David has done with Flextable and the Office Verse has saved me so much time. And he doesn't get enough credit for spearheading this effort. So he's truly a pioneer in this space. And for all of us in the trenches of enterprise, thank you, David. And I hope you keep it up because we definitely depend on it.
Not sure if you have any story times about Flex Table, Mike, but that was my take on it. What do you think about these updates? I don't have any stories about Flex Table in particular. Actually, this was my first introduction to Flex Table. I can't say that I've used it before, but I was glad to get introduced to it uh, in this blog post in our weekly this week. You know, as, as data scientists, data engineers, Linux lovers like yourself, you know, there's nothing that we love more than the Office suite. So <laughs> it is, uh, it's nice to have tools like this. That was a little bit of satire. Nice I to have tools so. like this that help us uh, work around the lovely nuances of the Office suite that we tend to run into from time to time because that is, uh, I guess, the tool that everybody else uses uh, or some of the tools that everybody else uses a lot of the time in industry. And you're right. I think it was just two weeks ago that we were discussing updates to the GT package for building static tables. So it's it's really awesome to see that all of these different table options we have at our disposal continue to get enhanced. And, you know, this is why we love open source. To me, you know, kind of at my first pass looking at the Flex Table package in this blog, the tables look look really formal, like something you'd see in an academic or research paper or maybe in a life sciences report on a clinical trial. I can't imagine how folks made formal looking tables like this before there were packages like FlexTable to do a lot of the heavy lifting, the spacing, the formatting, the footnotes, you know, to, to do a lot of that stuff for us. So it's, it's really nice to see the features of this package. And another feature that I did want to call out that I saw in this update is the ability to pass a linear model or a GLM or a bunch of a bunch of other statistical model objects to the function as underscore flex table and get like a beautifully formatted table that looks very similar to what you would get if you had had to use like broom as an intermediary step to transform uh, you know what's what's in that model object to a nice looking data frame to then go to the next step of of displaying it in a a table or something like that so that's all abstracted away for us by that this as flex table function. And it looks like we can pass data frames or model objects straight to it. And it really handles those nicely under the hood. So I'm excited to, to maybe try flex table here in my next static table project. And it's, it's cool to see how these different packages line up and compare to each other. Absolutely. And obviously having choice is great in this case. And I think what's nice about some of these enhancements that we've seen here is that it covers a spectrum of both you're doing maybe an exploratory analysis and you quickly want to generate these summaries for an ad hoc report that you give to a collaborator as you're literally in this maybe ideation or exploratory mindset. And then with some further customization that the package exposes, then you can even clean that up even further to meet, say, either a publication requirement or a regulatory requirement for standard formatting or some other system requirement. There's so much movement in this space of table generation, especially in the industry I'm in, that there's even a working group from sanctioned by the R Consortium literally dedicated to making robust tables in life sciences. Like that shows you that I'm not sure how it is for other industries, but boy, tables are a real thing here. And the, the fact that compared to when I first became a professional statistician, I think the only way we could create tables even look remotely like this, we were basically confined to LaTeX. That was it. And uh, I'm sorry, but yes, I did use S-Weave in the past, but uh, I'm not hard coding LaTeX tables ever again. Maybe 
unless I'm on a deserted island and nothing better to do. But that that's not happening anytime soon. That's what it was like in the old days before all these great uh, choices of packages became available. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting like ornery in my older age, but attention to detail is something that I, I care more and more about, it seems like, each year in terms of visualizing data. And I think a lot about that when I'm building a GG plot, you know, making sure that I have nice footnotes and caring a lot about where things are on the page, caring a lot about the colors that get used and, and if they line up with sort of the brand of the company that I'm building that visualization for. And, and as I start to dig into more of these table packages, I, I feel a lot of the same feelings that I, I feel around attention to detail for ggplot mm. when it comes to, to building these tables and, and formatting your headers and, and nice hierarchies in uh, some of those those headers and uh, you know things like like footnotes as well and where you want to place those below the table and and really paying attention to the detail and thinking about that end user um, it, it's nice that we're starting to get a lot of these options handed to us in, in these package updates. Yeah, there's um, there's been no better time to get into this kind of space than now, and I'm really excited to see the growth of yeah the 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 Office First Flex Table and GT and all these great uh, packages that are each doing a unique contribution in this space. So yeah, it's a excellent time to dive in. Now we can only talk about static stuff for so long. Well, we move on to some more interactive stuff, shall we? It's time for our another visit to one of Mike's and I favorite areas, and that is, of course, Shiny. And in particular, our next highlight has been very relevant topic for both of your uh, trusty hosts on this very podcast for uh, similar reasons. And what we're going to be talking about here is a case where, yes, it is very tempting in your fantastic Shiny app to try and do all the things, so to speak. But there are some situations where less is more, and this particular how is going to touch on that a lot. So, Mike, what do you, what do you think about you know, less is more in this context? So I have been I have not slept for probably the last twelve days straight because I am working on a project that has a ton of data sources that are sort of relational, and I am really struggling to build a strategy around how we are going to offload. The Shiny Workload, which is the title of this uh, blog post here. So it's very, very relevant and glad to see this hit my news feed, at least, as well as the R Weekly's feed. Super jealous that Jumping Rivers, who's the Shiny Consulting Company, has been maintaining Shiny apps for the World Health Organization in Europe. Very cool uh, use case that they have here behind this blog post. There's a mantra in their blog post that they preach, uh, and they say, do as little as possible. When it comes to what you ask the Shiny app itself to do, um, essentially, you know, talking about pre-processing of the data as much as you can outside of the app so that when it comes time to display the data in the visuals, the charts, the tables, uh, you aren't asking the app to do a ton of ETL, like pivoting or summarizing, aggregation. And like I said, this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart right now. Um, working on a project where the data was collected in a massive semi-relational database and none of the tables are very analytics friendly. So a lot of pivoting involved, um, a lot of filtering and summarization and, and ETL steps that we have to take. And trying to decide where that should take place is, is pretty tricky. But uh, 
fortunately for us, Jumping Rivers put together within their posts a bunch of really nice kind of sketched out diagrams, which communicate the relationship between the data, the app, and the users that they used in this particular use case for the World Health Organization in Europe. And the article does a great job of articulating all the different options that we have available to try to improve the speed and the efficiency of our Shiny apps, you know, including things like taking advantage of more efficient file formats, you know, Parquet format, something we've talked about a lot lately, Eric, um, utilizing asynchronous processing, something that I have yet to really dig into myself. Um, that's like packages like the future package or the promises package. Um, but I do have another project coming up where I think I'm actually going to try to use those packages for the first time um, so that you can sort of run these processes asynchronously. So for their project, um, Jumping Rivers offloaded some of the processing to GitHub Actions. And in the end, they had like three sources of raw data, which combined into a single processed source that was consumed by the app, I think for most of the visuals in the app. But interestingly, I think there might have been a couple of visuals in the app where they they still reached out to one of those three raw data sources um, on top of the process data. As an aside, you know, I can't understate how useful GitHub Actions has been for me in automating ETL jobs like this. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. But end to end, awesome blog posts by Jumping Rivers. I appreciate, I especially appreciate blog posts where there's a really strong use case behind it that articulates, you know, why they made the decisions that they made and absolutely one to check out for shiny heads like us. Yeah, it's great to see, you know, the, the, the blending of the tooling available, but also the thought process of why we might choose this approach. Now, if you have small data, this is not going to be a big deal. But then when it's expensive to do these transformations, these pivots, you impact the user experience. Now, that user experience could be honestly just for you if you're using this tool for your own benefit. But most of the time when we get to this production level, these are going to stakeholders, sometimes in very high positions, and boy, they're not going to like having to wait a minute or so, or frankly, even more than that, if the app is always, every time somebody is um, accessing it, doing these processes over and over again. Yeah, the approach here is certainly a sound approach. And they even reference, like you said, other techniques that you can get away from the uh, typical, say, text file format or RDS format. Parquet is certainly getting a lot of traction, and I'm not going to let this episode go without plugging my trusty co-host's new blog post on the RStudio blog, uh, combining Shiny and Arrow with the Parquet format, which I have linked in the show notes, because it's right along these lines of it's not just making the Shiny app do as little as possible, but when it has to do something, making it as robust as possible to access the data it needs. This is an issue that's also going to be touched on heavily in my upcoming workshop from both a database level and even things like Parquet, because it all blends into a similar narrative. The less overhead you can get to your Shiny app in the beginning stages of it, the dividends are going to increase exponentially as you build more complexity for the things that Shiny is really good at, the visualizations, the interactivity, um, the, the user experience. Put your attention on that. Let the, the other processing stuff be handled elsewhere. And GitHub Actions is certainly a huge um, avenue, a huge uh, benefit for these situations. Even for a silly app that I did to look at 
uh, when streamers around the art community were doing their Twitch streams, I had a little calendar app that simply had a GitHub action ETL of scraping the Twitch API to get the schedule data. I don't want the app to have to call that API every time someone logs in. Let's not get up actions and update it every you know hour or so. What's the harm? It's a very, you know, it takes about a minute or so to get all the connections and do all the munging. Let's not burden my app with that. Let's let get up actions do that. So there's lots of little nuggets here, but it all feeds into a bigger narrative that I think as you start to get away from just the prototyping stage into this next level of development, these techniques are going to help you immensely. Absolutely. Yeah. Deciding where the, the data is going to live, I think, was a central uh, topic on this post, as, as well as my, my post on the Studio blog. I appreciate you shouting that out, Eric. It's it's tricky decision process because a lot of it has to do with how often the data is going to get updated, right? If the data is only going to get updated maybe once a year, just push the data out with the app, have it have it in the same spot. Right. But if it's going to get updated, you know, every week, then you're going to need it to live someplace uh, aside from the app to where the app can reach out and, and grab it every time it gets booted up. And then if it's, you know, every quarter, then it's 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 tricky decision making process. And there's a lot to think about. So it was nice to hear some of that articulated uh, in Jumping Rivers post. Yep. And we're, we've seen a lot of great materials around that from quite a few uh professionals in the shiny community and others um it's starting to, the 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 part i enjoy the most is kind of taking bits and pieces from each of these every time i get a new project and figuring out where do i invest the time in, how do i make my workflow better there's always something i can do better every time and this was certainly one of them so this was this was a lot of fun to read and of course we'll have the link and in, in the show notes like everything else And speaking of essential, moving on to our last highlight, I would say in times like these, especially the present, the value of having a welcoming and diverse community cannot be overstated. And I've been fortunate to gain a lot of perspectives across quite a few of what I'll call the sub-communities within the broader R and you know data science communities um, through my conversations, both on and off the camera or the mic. They have really um, connected me quite a bit. And each of these sub-communities have their ebbs and flows. And so I was very excited that recently, one of my favorite community members that's been super supportive of myself and a few others in what we're calling the streamer group has helped to relaunch the Rainbow R community. And so a new post that's on the brand new Rainbow R site, authored by Ella Kay and Zane Dax, we learn how a small conversation at USAR 2017 planted the seed to launch a dedicated group supporting and connecting LGBTQ people with a passion for R with tremendous support from also the R Forwards Initiative, which has been instrumental in helping underrepresented groups also be influential members of the R community. Now, while the group Rainbow R did stall a little bit after their initial launch, Zane was eager to be involved and she proceeded to get in touch with Ella to lay a new foundation and revive Rainbow R here in 2022. And it is now easier than ever to get involved. You just visit Rainbow R, Rainbow R's website, which will be linked in this episode's show notes, to find their code of conduct and a sign-up form to join their group on Slack. 
And some really fun bits on top of the group being relaunched is that they are also assembling open data sets related to LGBTQ issues ready for the community to explore for additional insights. And as I've known Zane a little bit personally over the few months, she is always excited to create innovative visualizations. So of course, she's made a Rainbow R color palette package for ggplot too. That's just super awesome right there to visualize in, in the Rainbow R palette. So certainly I'm very happy to see this and you know, credit to Zane and Ella for kickstarting this group again. And they're definitely looking for more to get involved. So visit that website if you're interested. Yeah, I know one of the, as you know, Eric, when it comes to community, it can be tough to get a new community off the ground. Uh, and you know, I would encourage as many folks who are interested to not only join in this community, but maybe help contribute because when there are many hands, uh, it can make light work, right? And you know, to me, um, there are some amazing and not so amazing aspects of, of open source in the R community. First, anyone can get involved, but which is awesome, but everyone is also hidden behind a keyboard and it makes it easy to exclude others if you're trying to, uh, you know, when you're not dealing face to face. I think of some great examples like data science Twitter, not Twitter in general, which is very different. <laughs> the R stats, the R stats community in general on Twitter, which I have found to be like incredibly friendly and welcoming. And then maybe on the other side of the coin is when I was starting out, Stack Overflow felt like really there were some really condescending answers uh, from responders to questions from beginners. And I bet those responders would probably be nicer if it were in person and, and face to face. But, you know, all I'm, I guess I'm trying to say is that there are both welcoming and not so welcoming aspects of the tech and data science community and any efforts to improve the community towards towards the former, towards the more welcoming side of the equation. Those efforts are awesome. And, and the latest of which is the relaunch of the Rainbow R project. And in there, they state that their mission is to support, promote and connect LGBTQ plus people in the R community and to spread awareness of LGBTQ plus issues through data-driven activism. So a lot to digest there, lots of potential. Um, the fact that there's an entire Slack group for Rainbow R, I think is awesome. I think about everything that the R for DS Slack has done in terms of making me feel like a member of a community. And I can only hope that the Rainbow R Slack group provides the same strong sense of community in you know a COVID world where it can still be hard to create and maintain strong relationships and friendships with others uh, that shared similar interests to you. So really appreciated this blog post, making it to the top of our weekly, uh, where hopefully it gets the attention that it deserves and folks uh, who are interested can, can check it out. Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me also, you know, in terms of, you know, there, there's always like ups and downs, like you said, in, in open source and communities, but I think within the R community itself, we've had a lot of, you know, high, highly regarded and respected efforts. I also think of the R open side community as well as another model for how you can build and sustain and bring in engagement across many different parts of the R community together. So I think Rainbow R is definitely on the right path. And again, if nothing else, we are definitely speaking the high virtues of it for all of you to get involved. And They'll, they're welcoming to everybody. So again, visit Rainbow R's site for all the complete details. And again, my thanks to Zane and Ella for, for, for spearheading this again. And I'm sure it's going to 
get a lot of a lot of additional traction this time around. And there's a lot of additional great insights in our weekly's issue itself. So we're going to leave off with a couple additional nuggets that caught our eye. Um, one thing that I saw, which is actually timely on the day we're recording this, is a new package called Odds API created by Saim Jelani. Um, he is actually spearheading an exciting sports dataverse suite of our packages to help all of you in the community that are enthusiasts of sports data. I mean, I certainly have a soft spot for things like hockey and, and other sports. Um, to be able to bring this into R as easily as you can um, from a, a whole collection of different sources. And yes, even odds data is a part of this too, thanks to this odds API package linking to the odds API. That's a mouthful, but it definitely takes care of all that for you. Now I will say, Use that information responsibly. Mike and I are not financial advisors on this podcast, so you take that odds um, data as you see fit. But it's great to have it out there. And yeah, it's a great time to be a sports uh, sports geek with data and R right now. Yeah, I would take the Red Sox tonight. They're plus 120. Um, I have no idea what that means. But <laughs> <laughs> please, do, <laughs> please do not take my advice. I found a great article on the Poisson distribution. Uh, it's called From Basic Probability Theory to Regression Modeling with the Poisson Distribution. I love the Poisson Distribution. I think it's incredibly useful for all sorts of real world applications. And I hate when I see someone try to use a GLM or a tree-based model when Poisson would be a perfect option. Um, if you're not familiar, a Poisson process uh, models the number of occurrences of an event often referred to as like arrivals in a given time period. So uh, please, I am begging you, not every problem lends itself to machine learning. Check out some statistical models like the Poisson regression model. You even gave me flashbacks to part of my dissertation research, which involved Poisson counting distributions and someone called counting processes, martingale theory. It's all related to these discrete events that can happen over time. I'm about to dust off the cobwebs oh. because I'm probably <laughs> going to use that methodology in a new project later on. So I'm really going way back. But you you brought the feels back on that one, Mike. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Sometimes it's just good to have a little uh, refresher of some of the old ways. Throwback Tuesday as we're recording this for sure. <laughs> well, speaking of throwbacks, if you want to throw back to previous issues of Our Weekly as well as the current issue, where do you go? Well, we're going to tell you, of course, it's rweekly.org. Find this ep this current issue linked at the very top. Also a handy link to every episode of this podcast right at the top of the page as well. And we're always looking for everybody who's willing to get involved. So we're always a pull request away from your favorite R resource that you discovered or a new package or a new tutorial. We would love to have a feature on R Weekly. So please uh, get in touch with us by visiting to the GitHub repo and sending a pull request to our upcoming draft. And also, thank you to all of you around the world who are listening. We have a very worldwide audience here, and we greatly appreciate you tuning in. And certainly, I'm sure all of you are very interested to see what next amazing article Mike's going to be writing in the near future. So where could they find updates on that? You can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Or um, I'm one of those Michael Thomases out on, out on LinkedIn or whatever other social media you want to check out.
Yeah, awesome. Yep, I am at the Arcast, and after a little bit of investigating about should I should I not change my Twitter handle? I was a fun little discourse on that last week. I'm probably going to stick with it. It is unique, and I have at least one uh, person that's been featured on this uh, episode before that thinks he likes it. So I'm going to going to stick with it. So I was entertained the thought a little bit, but I'll I'll keep it that way. So anyway, you can find me on there. I'll start teasing out some of the various things I'm going to be doing at our studio conf and the workshop. And um, yeah, always happy to get in touch with all of you. And that certainly those are great places to reach us. If you have feedback on the Art Weekly podcast, um, please get in touch with us on Twitter. We love your suggestions and always looking to, you know, strive for improvement and keep it fun along the way. So that's going to wrap up episode 84 of the Art Weekly Highlights podcast. And we'll, we will be back with another edition soon. <laughs>